can turn your Bible, if you have one, to Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at verses 12 through 17 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page. There are some Bibles available on the table in the back if you'd like to follow along in one of those. Uh, This morning, you know, so we're in a a series on Revelation that we started uh, in the new year. Uh, We're looking at the third letter this morning from Jesus to the pastors of these seven churches in Asia Minor to whom uh, the the letter of Revelation is, the whole letter is addressed. Uh, In the first letter in chapter 2, these little mini letters that Jesus writes, uh, or he has John write to these uh, messengers at these churches. In the first letter uh, directed to Ephesus, Jesus commended them for resisting false teaching. They had done that well there. In the second letter to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, Jesus commended them for enduring persecution. They had done that well there, and they were uh, asked to to continue faithfully to do that. The church in Pergamum is facing both of those threats, false teaching and persecution. And Jesus says they've, they've done well enough uh, withstanding sort of the direct frontal assault, but that they've fallen victim to the more indirect, subtle attack. Right? The external threat of persecution they've faithfully endured But the internal threat of false teaching has dangerously infected them. And the way that Jesus talks about it here, and and really in in each of these letters that we find in Revelation 2 and 3, you get the sense that the more subtle internal problem of false teaching poses a much greater threat to the church than than the overt persecution does. Uh, So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's talk about that. Let's, uh, Let's see what that has to say to us, uh, how it applies to us. We'll, we'll read the scripture, but let me, let me pray first. <clears throat> Father, your word is very important to us. It's the most important thing in the world to us. Help us not to forget that. Help us not to set that aside. Help us not to uh, hear your word and immediately desire to distort it to fit our own preferences, or so that we feel better about our life in this culture. We pray that you would uh, give us your word sharp and clear this morning from these holy scriptures that we read, and as we consider them, we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to understand them and to receive them and to be changed by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give 
some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, Jesus references here this story of Balaam and Balak. Do you know that story? Uh, I would guess, even if you're somewhat familiar with the the Bible, the scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, you may not be familiar with this story. It comes from Numbers. Uh, It starts in Numbers chapter 22 and goes for several chapters in the book of Numbers. Um, You know, a lot of people, about this time of year, we've uh, made the New Year's resolution to read through the whole Bible, and you start in Genesis, and you get through Exodus, and you get really bogged down in Leviticus, and you don't actually end up getting to Numbers. <laughs> and so it's in Numbers, which is why you may not be familiar with uh, <clears throat> this story. So uh, God, Yahweh, the one true God, he's delivered his people out of Egypt. That's the big story so far in the book of Exodus. Uh, he's delivered them. They've been wandering the desert now, the wilderness. It's a place of trial and temptation, difficulty, uh, it's the place where you, you, actually, the whole scripture gives you the idea, this is the place where Satan's throne is, where his power is. Uh, it's in the wilderness. And, um, and so that's where the people of Israel are, in the wilderness. They haven't quite entered the promised land yet. They're really trying as much as possible to mind their own business. They're trying very hard to do that. They don't want to disturb the nations where they're passing through their, their borders and going through their territory. They say, we're not, we're not going to take much. We just want to drink from your wells, and we'll be nice and uh, trying to be friendly, right? But wherever they went, the kings of the nations felt threatened by them, and they picked fights with them. And since Yahweh, the one true God, the living God, was with them, they won all the fights. So Israel wins all the fights, but they weren't picking. The kings picked these fights with them. They win all these fights, and one day, Balak, he's one of these kings. He's the king of Moab. He sees all this, and he sees Israel camped there, and he's afraid. He feels like it's going to be trouble. Even though they're not looking for trouble, this king of Moab, Balak, uh, he feels that there's going to be trouble. So instead of mustering his army, which is what all these other nations have done and failed, right? You can't beat Israel. And people are starting to learn that because of their relationship with God. Uh, Instead of mustering his army to go out and do direct battle with Israel, he sends his messengers to Balaam, who is sort of a mercenary prophet, right? He's a prophet for hire. You pay this guy, and he tells you something, or he he blesses something, or he curses something that you want blessed or cursed. And so in Numbers 22, it says, uh, Balak uh, has sent through his messengers, he says, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they're dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balaam, the prophet, has a pretty good track record, and Balak knows it, and he wants to use it against the people of Israel. So long story short, I mean, it goes on for several chapters the prophet, Balaam, would happily have taken this money. He's a mercenary. He would happily have taken the money and cursed the people of Israel so that King Balak can come in and defeat them. But he couldn't do it. Yahweh wouldn't let him do it. The one true God wouldn't let him open his mouth and curse the people of Israel because every time he did that, every time he opened his mouth to curse them, God caused him to bless them instead, which made them 
appear even stronger and more fearful in the eyes of King uh, Balak, the king of Moab. So the mercenary prophet <clears throat> shifted tactics. That's the picture you get uh, from our Old Testament reading uh, from uh, chapter 31, verse 16. Uh, Balaam shifted tactics. He counseled King Balak to take an even more subtle approach to the whole thing. To take an even more indirect strategy, which was to lure Israel away from Yahweh, to entice them to betray God, to seduce them as one seduces a wife away from her husband, to seduce them with illicit sensuality, to join themselves to other gods, to sacrifice to other gods with them. Right? And the idea was that then the people would lose their distinctiveness as God's chosen people. And maybe God himself would turn against them. He'd be angry enough that he would abandon them, he'd forsake them, and he would curse them. And then Moab would have nothing to fear. Then Balak could overcome them because God was no longer with them. And the strategy nearly worked. It nearly worked. In the Old Testament reading, which Bill read, uh, Israel was seduced by the daughters of Moab, and they began worshiping their gods, Baal in particular. And it angered Yahweh because like a husband whose bride has betrayed him, Yahweh is a jealous God. So it said in Numbers chapter 25, Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord ordered the death of the chiefs of the people. And at that point, it might have appeared like victory to Balaam and to Balak, right? Because it looked like they, they might just have succeeded in turning God against his people. But it wasn't because Yahweh had ultimately turned against his people. It was, it was more like cutting out the infected parts of the body. He was taking drastic measures, having the chiefs of the people put to death. He's taking drastic measures so that the whole body might be saved so that, it says, the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So God did some pretty serious church discipline and he did it for the good of all of his people. For the good of the congregation. And this is the incident to which Jesus refers in the case of the church in Pergamum. The church had done well enough when it came to the straightforward test of faith. Just like Israel in the wilderness, they'd, they'd done well enough when it came to the, the straightforward challenges that the, the kings and the nations would offer them. They always defeated them in, in uh, straightforward combat. <clears throat> the church had done well when it came to the straightforward test of faith. When the enemies came with the clear ultimatum, deny Jesus or we kill you. Antipas, for one, chose not to, de to deny Jesus, and they put him to death. So Jesus, in our passage, he honors this Antipas, who may have been the first Christian martyr in this region. He honors Antipas by sharing his own title with him. It says earlier in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the faithful witness. And Jesus here calls Antipas my faithful witness. Jesus has, had stayed true to his testimony about God, even though it cost him his life. 
And Antipas, like the Lord, had stayed true to his testimony about him, even though it cost him his life. Antipas had a share in the life of Jesus Christ, in the ministry of Christ, in the death of Christ, and therefore he also shares in the resurrection and the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, uh, he doesn't just commend Antipas. He commends the pastor. That's um, all, these church, all these letters of Revelation 2 and 3 are directed to the messenger of the church. It says angel in a lot of our translations, but uh, really the word is basically messenger. So it's the, uh, he's, he's writing to the, the pastor or the leader, the one who declares his message, the one who preaches the good news in this church. So he commends the pastor's faithfulness during that difficult time. It says in verse 13, you, singular, you hold fast, you embrace, you seize, you, you cling to, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So even when the persecution was overt and severe and obvious and the threat of bodily death was real, the pastor of the church here continued to confess the name of Jesus. He continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like the people of the wilderness who wouldn't be overcome by the frontal assault in direct combat with, with an obvious ultimatum like this, you can see it coming and you can stand fast. But when the attack was more subtle, the pastor of Pergamum had faltered. So it says, Jesus says, but I have a few things against you, singular. <clears throat> you have some there who hold, the same word that em- embrace, the teaching of Balaam. And, uh, and so also you have some who hold or embrace the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans it may be referring to the same heresy. It may be referring to two different ones. Uh, we don't really know. And we can only guess about the substance of these false teachings. We can make maybe educated guesses. I'm not sure um, it matters much. Because we get a pretty clear picture from the way that Jesus is talking about it here, that the whole point of these false teachings, and the whole point of embracing these false teachings, is to have an easier time in the world. Right? When in Rome, when in Pergamum, uh, go along to get along. And that is appealing, that approach to life, that approach to your participation in the culture around you, go along to get along, is appealing because no one wants to stick out like a sore thumb all the time. No one wants that. That's hard. Living as a Christian in this world is difficult. It's like living with a raw nerve exposed on the outside of your skin, and painful contact and friction and conflict is bound to happen sooner or later, probably sooner. If you're continuing to live as a Christian in a world like this. So in order to alleviate the pressures of that conflict, the pressures which are constant and sometimes they're just subtle, in order to alleviate the pressures of that conflict, we can be tempted to conform to the world. So scholars think that it's likely that, uh, that whoever these false teachers were in the church in, in Pergamum, they were teaching that it was okay for the Christians to participate in the pagan feasts. So Pergamum was like a a hub for pagan religions. 
you had emperor worship and Rome worship and uh, the worship of Zeus. There was an altar to Zeus and all kinds of altars to false gods. Pergamum was like the, a center, a, a real uh, center in society for pagan uh, religion. And they'd have these feasts, and these teachers were probably teaching that it's okay for the Christians to just fully participate in those feasts, which is going to take pressure off you in, in business circles. It's going to take pressure off of you in economic and uh, uh, social circles, right? It's going to make those relationships easier for you. So just go ahead and participate. You're free to do that. So it's good for us to recognize that this is a very different scenario from the one we find in Paul's writings uh, in a couple of places where Paul suggests, you know, it's okay to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. It's okay. Because you know what? Those idols are false. They're, they're not real idols. So food sacrificed to them, it doesn't magically change the food. It's just food. It's just meat. So you can eat that meat. It's fine. But if you've got someone who has a, a, a problem of conscience with that, somebody who can't get past that, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat the meat out of sake of love for your brother or your sister in, in Christ. Right? That's the way that Paul's dealing with it. But here the idea is probably something more. It's not just you got meat from the grocery market that happened to be sacrificed to idols in a temple, but now it's, not, it's like disassociated from that. Uh, go ahead and take that meat home and eat it. It's, <clears throat> here the, the idea is probably something more like full participation in the event. Like going into the, one of the temples dedicated to the emperor or a temple de- dedicated to Zeus and partying with the rest of Pergamum just like everybody else is doing. So we might not have an obvious parallel in our culture. Maybe there are some parallels when you go to places like San Francisco and they have crazy pagan parties right in front of the, the civic centers. Maybe. Um, but I think we experience something similar to this when we feel the pressure to give up our distinctiveness as Christians to fit in with people that are important to us. So you might do well enough with a direct confrontation about your faith. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Okay, yes. Yes, I do. That was clear. That was straightforward. You might do well in situations like that, but sometimes you find yourself just wanting to fit in at work because it's so hard to, to not fit in perpetually. Maybe you want to keep your job at work. You know, you, so it could be easy to adopt certain dishonest business practices when that's what's expected and that's just what everybody else does and nobody's going to put up a big fuss about it. Just in order to, to fit in and go along to get along, just fudge on those areas a little bit. Sometimes you might find yourself joking inappropriately when you're in a group of people who are hostile to Christianity, hoping that they'll like you for, for being, surprisingly, a lot like them. Very often in a culture like ours, it can be difficult to keep a biblical vision of human sexuality. It's easier just to relax about it all, not to take it too seriously. Or when your friend asserts the opinion, you know, all religions are basically the same. It's easy to laugh and nod in agreement and give the impression that Christianity just fits in with all those other religions. It also is essentially just a good list of, you know, rules for moral living. Something in the spiritual buffet line that goes, it goes well with a bit of meditative yoga. It goes well with a side of Zen Buddhism and just, you know, sprinkle a little Jesus teachings on top. 
His teachings about love, his teachings about tolerance, not being judgmental. These things are easy because they're acceptable. It's acceptable to do those things. Whereas the exclusive truth claims of Christianity are definitely not acceptable. They never are acceptable to the world. There's a sense in which Christians who are doing these kinds of things, just going along to get along, you just kind of want to fit in so you conform. If you're doing those things, it's like you want a good thing, right? You want fellowship. You want community. To some degree, I mean, you want participation in society the way that it should be. We don't want conflict. We don't want to be rejected. That's not how it should be. We want communion. We want to feel like we belong. We want to belong. We want to feel at home and enjoy the goodness of relationships and the joy of relationships and peace. But Jesus says if we want true communion, it has to be with the true God. It has to be based on the truth of the gospel. You, You can't love the one true God and at the same time accommodate the gods of your neighbors which are contrary to his commands. You can't hold those two things together. You cannot seek the favor of the world the world that it's defined by its opposition to God and remain faithful to God at the same time. You can't do those two things at the same time. You can't hold fast or embrace the name of Jesus while also embracing false gods and false teachings. These things are necessarily mutually exclusive. So Peter Lightheart, this is a quote that's on the front cover of the bulletin. He says, humans do not have enough hands to hold Jesus' name and the teachings of heretics. They must lay down one or the other. So it's like when a bride is making her wedding vows, makes makes her vows to her husband, forsaking all others to be faithful only to him. You are either faithful and actually forsake all others, or you're not. And you can't be both at the same time. This is the great danger that they were facing in Pergamum, thinking that they could dwell in true communion with Christ, yet at the same time tolerating teachings that were antagonistic to Christ, antithetical to his teachings. Teachings that were that either distorted his clear commands or denied them altogether. And the fact that there were such teachers, false teachers, influencing the church here in Pergamum is something that Jesus holds the pastor responsible for. He holds the messenger of the church responsible for their very presence. The fact that they've been allowed into the church and tolerated there It's like when God held the chiefs of the people responsible in the the Moab incident. So I can easily imagine this pastor having tolerated these false teachers for the same reason that their false teachings were so appealing to everybody in the church. It's the easy way 
And the only alternative to tolerating them is conflict. That's the only alternative. So maybe the pastor was a go-along-to-get-along kind of a guy. Like, I, I think I can understand that. But that won't fly with Jesus because he is a jealous Lord. He wants true communion with his people. Like a husband desires faithful loyalty and, and true intimacy and an exclusive intimacy with his wife. And when that is threatened or when that is corrupted by those who would lead his people to embrace other gods, then you better watch out. He says, therefore, repent. And he's talking to the pastor. He says, you repent. Singular. Repent of your conflict avoidance. Because it's allowed something to continue in this church which should not continue. Repent of your tolerance of false teachers, because they have lured the people away from me, away from God. Repent of not fighting, not entering into conflict, to guard the bride of Christ, his precious people, from the threat of infidelity to her bridegroom. Therefore, repent, verse 16. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So it's, <clears throat> this is basically a call to the pastor to repent, and it's a call to him to institute church discipline. Right? The process of church discipline for the good of the church, for the glory of Christ, even for the sake of those false teachers, that they might have the opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. And it's, it's a sharp, two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth, from the mouth of Jesus. And that means with the same word, he speaks bad news and good news. With the same word, he says, what no one can bear to hear, yet what gives true life. With the same word, he condemns our sins and forgives our sins. With the same word, he cuts out the cancer of our wickedness and he brings healing and holiness. It's just like with Israel in the wilderness. <clears throat> when Yahweh's anger was kindled against them, he came to destroy the disease that infected the people, ultimately for the good of the whole congregation, to restore true communion. And this is the way that we always conceive of this frightening term, church discipline. Right? Church discipline. This is the way we always conceive of it. The purpose is always restoration. It's never just punishment. That's a dead end. That's not why God has church discipline in his, in his congregation. The purpose is always restoration to true communion, even if the process seems really painful, even if it leads through something like excommunication. Even the point of excommunication is restoration to true communion preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and, and here it is. Church discipline as authorized by Jesus is good news. It's good news for us that this is what he wants for his people. When Jesus calls you to repent of some sin that has been a wedge in your relationship with him that's separated you from him, when he calls you to turn away from that, it's good news because he's calling you to return to himself because he wants you. 
When Jesus gives you advance warning that he is coming in judgment and that now is the time to repent and seek him for his mercy, that's good news. He's giving you opportunity to receive his mercy. When Jesus gives the elders of a congregation the responsibility and the authority of church discipline to call people to renewed faith and repentance, it's good news. When Jesus calls you to cooperate with the elders, to submit to the ministry that they exercise on his behalf, it's good news. When Jesus calls you away from your spiritual love affair with the world, it's good news because Jesus is bringing you into true communion. It is good news that Jesus wants you protected and guarded and kept for communion with himself, even though it means your repentance, which is hardly ever a pleasant process. By his grace, he works true communion into a community of people who are sinners. We are, we're sinners, like the rest of everybody else in the world. But we no longer feel at home in the world. We're not looking to the world for our ultimate sense of belonging and our real community, our, our real communion. We don't fit there anymore. We stick out like a sore thumb or like an exposed nerve. He grants true communion with God to those who are in that situation. He grants true communion with God to those who trust him and therefore are willing to follow him as he leads us out of the world as he leads us away from the world's gods and away from a sense of belonging in the world. True communion in Christ, therefore, is founded on the word of the gospel, truly taught. You've got to know who Jesus is. And it's, it's founded on the discipline of the church, truly administered. So true communion is the promised reward of someone who uh, conquers, it says in verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So if you remember the story of the manna, this may be a more familiar story because it, uh, it happens in Exodus before you've given up reading through the Bible <coughs> uh, each year. <coughs> the story of the manna, again, is from the time when Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. God miraculously provided this mysterious food when they were hungry. And God instructed them, not just to collect it daily. He instructs them, gives them instructions on how to collect the manna for themselves so they can eat, right? But he also instructs them, very specifically, to collect a jar of it, one jar of it, so that they can remember his provision for them, so they can testify to his provision for them, his grace, and to keep that jar in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark that's in the, the tabernacle, right? So the hidden manna was inside the Ark. It's inside the most holy place. It's that place where really only the high priest can go once a year, right? And even then, it's sealed inside the Ark of the Testimony, and he can't even see it let alone eat it. He certainly can't eat the manna, the hidden manna that's inside that ark. <clears throat> but, but Jesus is saying, when you embrace the name of Jesus and when you hold fast to it and when you trust him and when you follow him, even though that means conflict 
with the world on a whole lot of fronts, some of them more subtle than others. Conflict with the values of the culture around you, conflict with the opinions of your friends. You are brought all the way into God's own table. You're eating God's own bread. It's that hidden manna. You have true communion. You have true fellowship with God. You're sharing the life of Christ. You're eating the bread of heaven. Even now at this very table that's, that's right here before us, but even more so when you go into the presence of the Lord forever. There may be several ways of understanding the white stone. <clears throat> Scholars uh, throw out a long list of what this might be, what it might mean. But I think the basic idea is kind of clear, even if you can't understand all the specifics of it. <clears throat> a name is written on it. A name that no one knows except the one who receives it. And that speaks of a shared secret. That's the point of that. It's a shared secret. It's a wonderful personal knowledge. It's a real, profound understanding between the Lord who gives it and the one who conquers, the one who remains faithful. The stone is white, which communicates purity. It's a stone. It's a strong, solid thing, which communicates security. Right. So the reward for faithfulness is this inconceivably intimate relationship with Jesus Christ himself where you're assured you're assured that he knows you better than anybody else does knows you inside and out better better than you know yourself and that he loves you where his knowledge of you transforms you and it makes you more like him where you know what it's like for him to be who he is because he's let you in on that secret, on the secret of his own life. I think the name written on the stone, I think a lot of scholars would, uh, would guess, the name written on the stone is probably the Lord's own name. It's his own name. And it becomes something new and intimate and personal and almost secret when it's shared with his people in that relationship, that unique relationship. You belong to him, and he belongs to you, and that belonging cannot be found anywhere else, no matter how hard you try to fit in. That belonging can't even be understood by anybody else. But that belonging is most precious, that belonging is better, that belonging is truer than any other kind of belonging. The only way that you can be okay with sticking out like a sore thumb in the world is when you know you belong to Jesus in this kind of a way. The only way you can continue to live in contact with the world, we're not called to, to come out of the world, we're called to live in the world. But sadly, that means conflict. That's hard. And the only way to continue to live in that way is when you know that you are surely accepted by God in Christ. The only way you can follow him when it means your repentance, you've got to turn away from those things that your heart's been gravitating towards, those things that have been seducing you away from the true lover of your soul. 
The only way that, that you can follow him when it means your difficult repentance. Or the, way, the only way that you could call others to real repentance. If that's your responsibility in the church. Or being a participant in church discipline in some way, in any way. The only way you can do that is when you know that it's because Jesus desires true communion with you. He desires true communion with his people. He holds it forth and he calls you to it if you would embrace him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are some hard words that uh, we hear. It is a somewhat frightening image of Jesus with a two-edged sword coming from his mouth. That his word can have that effect on us that it can slay, and that it can bring to life and heal. We pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to believe that everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord is good. Everything that he says, it really is good. Everything he says and does and calls us to do is for our good. It's for a real communion to take place, for true communion to be restored in our lives, in the life of the church. Ultimately, uh, in the life of the whole world. The whole world is being renewed in true communion with you as your kingdom advances, as your word advances, as your church advances throughout the the world, calling people to repent and believe the gospel and step back into a real relationship with you as a gift of your grace. We pray that you'd give us the, the full assurance that this is your intention for us, that this is your desire, that this is what you hold forth for us even in those painful areas of uh, conflict with the world, even those places where you're calling us to repent of our having been conformed to the world in subtle ways. We pray that you would expose those ways to us. Uh, we know that, that that process may not be pleasant, but we ask you to do it because, um, because you are good, you know what you're doing, your word is true, you're the great judge. We entrust ourselves to you. We want to be responsive to you. Um, even if it means our, our painful repentance of ways that we've uh, sought after other gods and united ourselves to them. We pray that you'd help us for the sake of true communion with, with you and with one another in the church. We pray this in your name. Amen.